you would, take out your copy of Scripture, turn to Mark chapter 1 as we close out Mark chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to take a short break over the summer, spend the summer in the book of Jude, one of the um, most neglected books in the Bible, probably the most neglected book in the New Testament, Um, and uh, we want to just spend the summer looking at Jude's epistle, and um, looking forward to that. And then we'll pick back up in Mark chapter 2 at the end of the summer uh, in August, September-ish. But for now, we're going to finish up Mark chapter 1 in verses 40 to 45 this morning. Um, Kind of along with this um, particular text, uh, as I spent time in this particular text this week, it made me think of two books. And as some of you are about to head out on summer vacation, have a little extra time maybe over the summer, wanted to just um, provide you potentially with some good summer reading. So out at the book table, unless y'all took the books already, there should be uh, two books available there. One is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, and the other is Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. Uh, those have been maybe some of the most formative books I've read in the last decade or so, and I think uh, are, are good reflections of um, just what is uh, seen in our text here. And so I would uh, commend those to you, even if you don't get a copy uh, this morning, go to Amazon or, or to uh, go to Crossway Publishing or, or uh, some publisher's website and, and buy a couple of those books. Ten of those is another good website. I know that particularly Gentle and Lowly is uh, hard to keep in stock because it's selling so much. But Gentle and Lowly, Rejoicing in Christ, uh, go check those books out. Spend some time reading them this summer. Uh, But for now, let's dig into the book of books, uh, the scriptures, particularly in Mark 1, verses 40 to 45. Um, If you would like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy to Mark 1, 40 through 45. And uh, keep in mind that this is not, don't think of Mark's uh, kind of transitions in a merely kind of in a linear sense um, or in a chronological sense. Um, this is probably not uh, immediately following our text from this last week. So don't, don't think of it in terms of it, this happened right after our text from last week. Uh, this could have been some time uh, from the, uh, the story which took place in our text last week. But look at Mark 1, 40 through 45. And let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God. Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, anoint the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that our ears would be opened, our eyes opened, our hearts be softened to receive the truth of your word, to believe its statements, to trust its promises, to obey its commands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I once heard a, um, a theologian remark saying, when my sons complain about a book that is too hard to read, I say, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. And this seems to me to be generally true about pretty much all books, but especially so with the Bible. Um, you know, that's not to say that if all you do is rake the Bible that you won't find anything valuable there. Of course you will. Uh, I've heard other people remark that the Bible is like um, a kiddie pool that's shallow enough for children to play in, but also like a deep, deep body of water, deep enough for elephants to wade in. And I think that's true. There's something there for the most elementary reader who has nothing but a rake, but there's also gold and diamonds there for those who bring their shovels to dig a bit deeper. And I think this is true of the Bible in general, but it seems particularly true of the miracles of Jesus recorded in Mark's gospel. Uh, at surface, you see something remarkable. You, see, you really do. You see something remarkable. And, and uh, Jesus' healings, for instance, you see something of the, the authority and power of Jesus and his ability to heal. You see something of his, his tender heart and mercy toward those who are suffering under sickness and affliction. Uh, but if you bring a rake and a shovel, you'll see that Mark is also trying to communicate something more than just the authority and power and mercy of Jesus to heal. He's telling us something essential about why Jesus has come and in ultimate and, and fundamental sense. And here in Mark 1, 40 through 45, if we use our rakes and our shovels, we'll see that Jesus is compassionate and powerful to cleanse this afflicted leprous man. But what's more is that he's come not only to cleanse lepers like this man in our text, but to compassionately cleanse those afflicted by what J.C. Ryle calls the spiritual leprosy of sin. So together we're going to pick up our rakes and pick up our shovels, and we're going to look together at the leper's request in verse 40, the leper's response in verse 41, the leper's relief in verse 42, and then lastly in verses 43 to 45, the, le- the Lord's retreat. First, let's look at the leper's request. Verse 40, Mark writes, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now, it's, it's hard for us to really wrap our, our heads around the sort of um, stigma surrounding leprosy in first century Palestine. Uh, it, was, it, was fairly, it was a fairly common problem at the time and in, in, in that place, but uh, surrounding it, it had a great cloud of, of kind of superstition and fear. It's a skin disease, as you know, uh, and at the time, leprosy was a word that described uh, a few different skin diseases, but including the, the devastating infection that we now today called Hansen's disease, uh, which can result in, you know, the 
um, the loss of uh, particular members like your fingers, the crippling of hands and feet, and blindness and paralysis. And it was so common in the pre-modern world that the law of the Old Testament actually had instructions for how to deal with leprous people, uh, and you can find those instructions um, in Leviticus 13 and 14. As you read these instructions, uh, you can find, uh, as one commentator puts it, that leprosy in this time and in this place was not just a disease, it was a sentence. Uh, Listen to what Leviticus 13, 45 and 46 says. It says, the leprous person who who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So as you can readily see, this disease not only deprived individuals of their health, but it also deprived them of their their reputation, their vocation, from their normal lives, from their families and fellowship with the believing community. What's more is it actually deprived them of joining in the worshiping community in the temple for fellowship with God because they were ceremonially unclean. Again, it it might be really hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around what a person with leprosy might go through due to this disease at the time. Uh, Some of you might have gotten a a, a kind of small taste of this uh, over the last year, if you've suffered from COVID at any point. Um, For a short time, you were deprived not only of your health, but you're deprived from social interaction and human touch and unable to fellowship with and worship with God's people for a short time. Uh, Or some of you with comorbidities may not have only experienced this for a short time, but for a kind of extended time. You've, you, you've, you've maybe quarantined for, a much, quarantined for a much longer period. Perhaps you've had a small taste of what a leper might experience in the pre-modern world. They were required to practice uh, indefinite social distancing, uh, keeping a, a, about 50 paces away from other people. At all times, they were to make their appearance, as you could see in the text we just read. They were to make their appearance repugnant in order to ward others off from approaching. Uh, Some rabbis would even refer to leprosy uh, or leprous people as the living dead, a description that's fitting uh, not only because they they viewed leprosy as as hard to heal as raising the dead, but also because, you know, basically from from, uh, the, the sort of instructions regarding what to do with lepers people as they were being cut off from others. It was basically a death sentence. They were treated as if they were dead. They were put, they were, they were to put it in a word, they were unclean. Unclean, meaning that they were ceremonially impure, cut off from the people of God and from the worshiping community. And I want you to realize, though, that here, leprosy in Scripture and particularly as it relates to the categories of being clean and unclean, signifies something beyond itself. That's not to say that, um, uh, you know, it, it, it uh, <coughs> excuse me, that it, um, I should say, it signified something beyond itself, particularly it signified the disease of sin under which we all suffer. Uh, it signified the disease of sin. And, and that's not to say, again, that it's uh, people who experienced leprosy suffered from leprosy as a punishment for their own sin, 
But it is to say that leprosy itself, with its its devastating effects, the defilement that it brings, the destructive power that it had over human life, in the way in which it cut off an individual from God's temple and God's people, is itself a picture or a symbol of the sinfulness of human beings. Uh, Greek scholar R.C. Trench has said that leprosy in the scriptures is a parable of sin being an outward visible sign of innermost spiritual corruption. Uh, Kent Hughes has said that the nature of leprosy, with its insidious beginnings, its slow progress, its destructive power, and the ultimate ruin it brings, makes it a powerful symbol of moral depravity. If we, are, if we see ourselves with spiritual eyes, we see that apart from the work of Christ, we would be decaying forms of walking death. And this is why the Bible uses leprosy as a type or a parable of sin, the uncleanness it brings, the way that it cuts us off from God and his people. And with that, you can see what Mark is trying to do here. Okay, you put, put down your rake, grab your shovel. Mark is trying to show us not just that Jesus is powerful and merciful to heal people of their physical calamities. He's trying to show us what Jesus came to do for those of us with spiritual leprosy. He's trying to show us what Jesus has come to do for us who suffer with the uncleanness of sin. But before we get there, notice how Mark shows us something of what we spiritual lepers must do in order to be cured. We must come to Jesus. Like this leper with his request, he comes and cries out with his humble request, if you will, you can make me clean. We must come to Jesus and confess to him in order to be cleansed. And I wonder, Christian, what your most immediate disposition and impulse is when you start to see and discover sin in your life. I wonder, when you really mess up, when you really blow it, when you're thinking, I can't believe I did that again, what is your most immediate impulse? And What do you do? My hunch is that, for some of us at least, our initial impulse is to hide, to hide from God, hide from others in shame, like Adam and Eve, hiding from God in the garden, <coughs> hiding from, from one another, sowing fig leaves for ourselves. We hide, or other, others of us might um, have the natural inclination to go to law, to go to law, uh, or to simply resolve to to do better, to promise to clean up our act, to do better the next time, to to change our behavior and commit ourselves to mere moral reformation. And what we need to see, my friends, is that if sin is like leprosy, which Mark wants us to see that it is, then notice what the law does for this man. Notice what the law does for this leprous man. The law doesn't cleanse him. The law doesn't cleanse him. The law can't heal him. As we saw in Leviticus 13 and 14, all the law can do is declare him to be clean or unclean, but it can't make him clean. Likewise, the law may show you your sin, but it can't cleanse you of your sin. In fact, notice that for this man, the law doesn't actually just declare him to be unclean, it actually makes matters worse for him. 
It not only declares him to be unclean, but it condemns him to a life separated from the believing and worshiping community and separates him from communion with his God. Don't go to the law to clean you up. You won't find it there. It can't do that. But Jesus can. And and this leprous man knows that. And so instead of running to law, instead of, of hiding like Adam and Eve, he comes to Jesus with his request. Notice that he abandons any customer shame. He boldly approaches Jesus and confesses utter confidence in Christ and requests to be made clean. He doesn't keep 50 paces back from Jesus. He doesn't keep his distance. He draws near to Jesus. That's the application in this verse. When you're drowning in sin and guilt and shame, don't go to law, don't hide. Draw near to Jesus with your request to be made clean. Don't be afraid to approach Jesus. Boldly run to Jesus. Fall down on your knees before him. Confess your uncleanness and your need for his cleansing power. You realize this is why we boldly confess our sins to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. We just did this earlier. Not merely because we're commanded to do so, as if confession were a mere law that that Christians must follow. But we pray and confess our sins because it's in Jesus alone that we find cleansing from our sin. So we see in in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So my friends, what do you do with your sins? Where do you run with your sins? Where, do you run to a hiding place? Do you run to, to fig leaves of law and moral reform and getting your act together? That's a dead end, friend. That's a dead end. Don't run there. Run to Jesus. And if you do, you'll be greeted by the Lord's response. Look at verse 41 with me. <clears throat> Mark writes, Moved with pity. Moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. I will be clean. Now, I, I love this Greek word translated as moved with pity here. It's a great word. Uh, the CSB offers a, a better translation. I think it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. That's literally what the word means, to have compassion. And yet, <clears throat> even that, doesn't really capture the strength of the word um, in, in, in the same way that the original does. Dane Ortland puts it beautifully when he writes that this word denotes more than passing pity. It refers to a depth of feeling in which your feelings and longings are churning within you. The noun form of this verb means most literally one's guts or intestines. You see, here we're, we're, getting, we're getting a window into the emotional life of Jesus Christ. We're getting a window here into the very heart of Jesus Christ here. And what we find in the face of human sin and suffering, in the heart of Christ, is gut-wrenching, heart-churning compassion. Compassion undiluted, 200-proof compassion in the heart of Jesus Christ. But then what's more is that this gut-wrenching, heart-churning compassion led Christ to action. He wasn't idle in his compassion. 
His compassion moves him to action. The Lord says, I will be clean. And yet, even with that, his actions speak more loudly than his words here in some ways. Notice that he doesn't just say the word, which he could have done. Like, we know that he could have done that. We've seen him do that already. We know that he could have just said, be clean, and it would have happened. But he does more than that. Notice that he reaches out and he touches this man. He touches him. This, he touches this man whose life for so long has been devoid of human compassion and human touch. And he touches him. And not only the leprous man, but in his compassion here, Jesus abandons all custom with his compassionate touch. My friends, with this theme of this leprous man being a mirror of us spiritually, I wonder if sometimes what keeps us from drawing near to Jesus Christ when burdened and weighed down by sin and guilt and shame is a misunderstanding of the heart of Jesus toward us. You know, even this leprous man here, notice he doesn't question Jesus' ability to heal him. He doesn't say, if you can heal me. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. He knows that Christ can heal. He's heard about it. Even, he may have even seen it before. So he says, if you will. He doesn't question if Jesus can heal him. He questions if Jesus wants to heal him. He questions if Jesus desires to heal him. You know, so often we might be confident in Christ's ability to save and his ability to heal and his ability for, to forgive for someone else. But we question, does he really want to for us? Does he really want to? And if that's the case, then the sort of application we might explore here is to have a correct view of Jesus. Probably for many of us, when we're weighed down with sin and guilt, we imagine Jesus standing in heaven with a furled brow, utterly disgusted with us, his patience wearing thin with us, maybe possibly even thinking that he's done with us. We might be tempted to think that we need to fix ourselves up and convince him to take us back. And if we do that, perhaps then maybe he'll reluctantly receive us back into his good graces. That's not what we see here. What we see here in the heart of Christ is a heart full of pity and compassion, guts churning with longing and desire to be gracious, to heal, to cleanse, to forgive, to set free from guilt and shame. In his book, The, the Heart of Christ Toward Sinners on Earth, Puritan Thomas Goodwin describes the gracious and compassionate and tender disposition of Jesus toward his sinning people in this way. He says, there is comfort concerning such infirmities and in that your very sins move him to pity more than anger. For he suffers with us under our infirmities, and by infirmities are meant sins as well as other miseries. Christ takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. 
Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you. His compassion is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. Or as one is to a member of his body that has leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his own flesh. But the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What shall not be turned to our advantage and welfare when our sins that are both against Christ and us shall be turned as motives to him to pity us the more? The greater the misery is, the more is the pity when the party is beloved. Now of all miseries, sin is the greatest, and while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such also, and he Loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall in that only upon the sin to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his affections shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. You see, my friends, this, every sinner that comes to Christ for cleansing is met by this very heart of compassion and pity. Of course, you know, when we're weighed down by sin and guilt, we would never want to come to a God who would meet us with reluctancy or disgust or an icy disposition. But if what we find is a yearning heart and a hand that reaches out in compassion, wouldn't that woo us? As Michael Reeves puts it, the beauty of Christ's heart wins ours. And doesn't it, doesn't that woo us? Doesn't that win our hearts when we know that even in our sin, In suffering, his heart is longing for us all the more. So don't hide away in shame. When sin and guilt and shame plagues your soul, run to Christ and there find your relief. Which brings us next to the leper's relief. Verse 42 says, And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. The word... In touch of Jesus did it. The leper was healed on the spot. But then, you know, the word healed doesn't really do it justice. Remember, leprosy wasn't just a disease, it was a sentence. It robbed this man, not just of his health, but of his family and livelihood and community, and most importantly, from communion with his God in the temple. And so he doesn't just need healing, he needs to be made clean. And this word clean is significant here. Notice how this word is repeated In the first three verses of our text here, Mark wants us to see this isn't mere healing, as we've already seen in Mark. This is cleansing. This is a removal of the disease. Yes, but it's more than that. It's a removal of the status of being unclean. This is healing. What we find is more. It's cleansing. We find Jesus giving the man what's needed to restore him to the believing community and to give him welcome back into communion with his God. The Lord is removing all barriers that lay between this man and his God and the people of God. And this is significant 
Because by all indication, the fact that Jesus touched this man, again, ought to have made Jesus unclean along with this leprous man that he touched. It was one of the laws that we find back in Leviticus 5.3. That if someone touches a person who's unclean, that person then becomes unclean. And yet, that's not what we find here with Jesus. Instead, the man's uncleanness, instead of his uncleanness being transferred to Jesus, Jesus' holiness is transferred to the man. Instead of Christ becoming impure by this touch, the man is made pure. Instead of Christ becoming defiled, the man becomes holy. Now friends, this is a picture of what Jesus does to broken sinners who come to him. And the word for this is the word expiation. The word expiation. Uh, Expiation is the the cleansing of sin and the removal of sin's guilt. It's a theological word. Uh, R.C. Sproul defined it as the removal of sin and its pollution. In other words, expiation is the work of God to remove the disease of sin from us along with its effects of making us unclean before him. This is Jesus removed the disease of leprosy from this man along with its effects of making him unclean. And when we talk about what's accomplished uh, by Jesus and his atoning work, there are two really important uh, pieces that we should talk about. One is propitiation. Propitiation. And we've talked about this before. Uh, our, our particular Christian tribe seems to really emphasize this one. We've talked about it quite a bit, actually. But propitiation is a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. And in his coming, Jesus has taken God's wrath upon himself on the cross, and he's appeased God's wrath on his de- in his death on the cross, thus making God favorable toward us, making God pro-us. But propitiation is not the only thing that took place on the cross. Expiation took place there. And expiation must take place in order for propitiation to take place. In other words, Christ must take our sin and our guilt away from us before God. We must be cleansed and washed clean in order for God to receive us as clean. And Jesus brings us this very gift in himself in relation to God. And the doctrine of expiation always makes me think of um, Shakespeare's Macbeth, that famous episode in um, scene five, act one. Uh, It's a a famous episode there we find in scene five, act one, where Lady Macbeth is, is delirious with guilt and grief. And of course, if you're familiar with the play, you know that Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, have conspired against King Duncan, and they've, they've brutally murdered the king in order for Macbeth to, to make his way to political power. And since they've murdered King Duncan, they've not been able to sleep since. Even when Lady Macbeth does find a little bit of sleep, she soon wakes after plagued by nightmares replaying the murder. And in, in scene five, act one, Lady Macbeth's maid has called the doctor because she's worried about her lady, and the doctor and the lady observe Lady Macbeth talking to herself, and she's, she's rubbing her hands violently over and over again, and she's hallucinating that there's a spot of blood on her hands from when she and Macbeth had murdered King Duncan that she just can't get out. And so she's rubbing her hands again and again, saying, out, damned spot, out, I say. And what she's longing for and deliriously seeking 
is expiation, being cleansed of sin and guilt, having her sin and guilt removed from her and her hands made clean thereby. Like Lady Macbeth, my friends, none of us have clean hands. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, who can say, I've made my heart pure, I am clean from sin. Romans 5.11, none is righteous, no, not one. But the good news is that Christ has come to give us this gift of expiation in himself. He's come to take away our sin and to cleanse us of its guilt. And you know, Christian, that, that may seem somewhat basic and elementary to you, but I, I want you to see that even in this present age, with all of its complexities and developments and distractions, our problem as humanity is fundamentally the same as it was in Shakespeare's day and as it was in Jesus' day and even before that. Our problem is fundamentally the same. Here we are with our smartphones and, and, and vaccinations and internet and medical advancements. You know, we've, we've basically cured Hansen's disease. Here we are with all of these advancements. And yet our consciences still condemn us. Our consciences still condemn us. We still don't feel good enough to come to God. And indeed, that's exactly right. No matter how sensitive or seared our consciences may be, it's true. We're not good enough to come to God. Our consciences condemn us because apart from Christ, we're condemned. And knowing this, we construct ethical systems and worldviews and religions and more to soothe our defiled consciences. People in the past would sacrifice animals or cut themselves or even burn their children upon altars to try to cleanse their condemning consciences. Today, we might make donations to charity or serve in a soup kitchen or punish ourselves with negative self-talk or, or make empty promises to try to improve ourselves, doing whatever we think might work to cleanse our consciences, to give us expiation from our sin and guilt. But the only way, both in times past and today, to have our sins and guilt removed from us is found nowhere else but in the cleansing touch of Jesus Christ. If you would be free from sin, the tenderness and touch of Jesus Christ will only, it will only, it's the only thing that will give you the relief that you are looking for. And how, you might ask, you might ask, how does he do that? How does Jesus give us this gift of expiation? How does he make us clean? Actually, Mark shows us. He gives us a little picture of the way through which Jesus gives us this gift of expiation and makes us clean in the Lord's retreat. Look at verses 43 to 45 with me. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now right away here, we see something of the secrecy of Jesus' ministry in Israel and in Galilee. 
Uh, we saw this in our text a few weeks ago when Jesus silenced the demon who would, uh, who would identify him. Uh, and of course, when we saw that, that makes sense since Jesus would not want a demon openly, publicly identifying him, uh, being a public witness to his identity that could potentially confuse people. This seems a bit different, doesn't it? It seems a bit strange. Why wouldn't Jesus want this miracle to be publicized in Galilee at this time? It could be good for popularity. It could draw a crowd. It could get his name out there. People would definitely make the trip to come and see Jesus, which, as we see, is actually what happens. But you can see here that that's exactly what Jesus doesn't want. He doesn't want to become popular in Israel and Galilee for his ability to heal and his authority to deliver. Uh, notice that in just our previous verses, 38 and 39 of Mark chapter 1, just preceding our text, Jesus is viewing his ministry calling at this point, particularly and primarily in terms of preaching and teaching. You know, he had come to, to proclaim the kingdom of God in Galilee, and yet he couldn't uh, travel and do that in the way that he wanted because the expectations and demands and onslaught of the crowds just entirely surrounding him and hindering him. And they did so to the point that he was driven out from po populated areas into desolate places, into desolate places. That word translated as desolate places throughout Mark 1 is also the same word translated as wilderness earlier in Mark 1. He's driven out into the wilderness. And with that, notice how the leprous man gets to be restored to the people of God. While Jesus is cast out into desolate places, this man is restored to the community. Now remember, leprosy wasn't just a disease, it was a sentence. This leprous man, when his leprosy was discovered, was declared unclean, and he was cast out of society, excommunicated from the people of God. And often, lepers would form these leper colonies out in wilderness areas and desolate places out in the wilderness since they were cut off from the community. But here, this man is reintegrated back into the life of God's people, welcomed back into the temple and back into communion with God, while Jesus is cast out into the wilderness. He traded places with the leper. The leper became clean, and Jesus became the outcast, cast out into the wilderness. And now you might recognize some imagery here that's familiar from the Old Testament, in particular in Leviticus. If you do go to read Leviticus regarding the laws of lepers, the laws regarding lepers in chapters 13 and 14. If you keep reading, you'll arrive in Leviticus 16, where we see instructions regarding the Day of Atonement. And this was that, that autumn day in the Jewish calendar, every year wherein the high priest would offer a sacrifice of atonement for the people of God. And the sacrifice of atonement involved two goats. And the first was slain for the sake of its blood being shed to cleanse the people with innocent blood. But the second goat wasn't slain. The second goat would have the high priest's hands laid on its head. The high priest would lay his hands <coughs> excuse me, on the head of that second goat. And while doing so, he would confess the sins 
of the people of Israel and would thus symbolically transfer the sins and guilt of the people of Israel to this goat. And when this goat was symbolically weighed down with the sins and guilt of the people of God, they would then drive it out east into the wilderness, into desolate places, symbolizing that God had expiated or had removed the sins and guilt of his people from them and thus cleansed them of their guilt. Of course, we know, friends, from Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and and goats to take away sins. And thus these goats weren't actually offering atonement for the people of God. Instead, they were serving as a picture and parable of the atonement which was to come in Christ Jesus. And that's what Mark is showing us in our text here in verses 43 to 45, is that that Old Testament goat into the wilderness was merely a picture of what Christ has come to accomplish. When Jesus cleansed this man by himself being driven out into the wilderness, God is showing us that Jesus has come to make us clean by himself becoming our expiation. And thus Mark is foreshadowing that which he will go on to show us in Mark 15. When Jesus was cast out of Jerusalem, not merely to preach and proclaim and perform miracles in desolate places, but he was excommunicated from the city there to suffer and shed his blood and die after having the hands of the high priest laid on him. After having all of the sins and guilt of God's people laid on himself, he was driven out and declared unclean and drowned in his own blood so that we would be cleansed from our defilement and disease of sin. My friends, Jesus became an outcast so that you might become clean. He became our sin and went to the cross so that we would be clean. On the cross, he touched our humanity and our sinfulness and our uncleanness, thus making us clean, all because his heart yearned for us with compassion and grace. He is our expiation. He is our compassionate cleanser. He is our salvation. And thus, when we are weighed down by sin and guilt and shame, don't run to law. Don't hide away. Don't resort to mere moral reform and resolution to be better. Draw near to Jesus. Confess your need to him. And you will find a compassionate response and he will cleanse you and make you whole. Let's pray together. God, we thank you the compassionate heart of Jesus and the window into his heart that we've seen here in Mark 1, 40 through 45. We thank you for his work of expiation, thus cleansing us and making us whole and removing our defilement from us. We pray that you would give us assurance in our consciences this morning so that we are all the more Drawing near to Jesus, knowing that what we'll meet there 
is this heart, this touch, this cleansing, this response, this forgiveness, this cleansing. Help us to do that based on what we've heard and seen today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.